Anxiety is something we all feel now and then. It's a natural evolutionary trait, part of the fight-or-flight response that's helped humans survive for millennia. Today, we're not running away from saber-toothed tigers, but it's still natural to feel anxiety under stress. Like before taking a test, for example, or asking your boss for a raise. However, for some people, anxiety is off the charts, overwhelming and debilitating even when there's no apparent threat. People who have really severe anxiety disorders suffer from clinical anxiety really badly. You know, there's some of them have not been able to leave their house for years at a time or are unable to travel or unable, if they have severe social anxiety, to hold jobs and be in relationships just because the mere act of interacting with other people becomes so anxiety-producing. That's Scott Stossel, editor of The Atlantic magazine and author of My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. Stossel has suffered from severe anxiety ever since he was a kid. That's when most acute anxiety disorders take root. When I was a kid, anytime I was away from my parents, I would be convinced that they had abandoned me or had died or had died in a car crash. And I literally paced grooves in my carpet of my bedroom because, you know, even if they were late, if they were 10 minutes before they were supposed to be home, I would be absolutely convinced that I was never going to see them again. As I've gotten older, you know, my sort of first and still most longstanding phobia is a metaphobia, which sounds idiosyncratic and weird to people who have never heard of it or don't have it, but many people do. We're now learning from sort of internet research, but a metaphobia is the pathological fear of vomiting. So, you know, when I was a kid, if I was ever exposed, and even as an adult, if I'm exposed to someone who's sick, I end up compulsively washing my hands. I have to leave the house. If someone in the house is sick, I spend much of my time sort of non-productively analyzing how to avoid contracting stomach viruses. Stossel also has claustrophobia, a fear of enclosed spaces. He's also afraid of heights, cheese, fainting, flying in an airplane, germs, and speaking in public. Sometimes it can be what they call endogenous panic attacks, and they just sort of strike from nowhere, where suddenly you feel this sense emotionally of overwhelming dread and terror, but physiologically it's like your body's gone into meltdown, and people often think that they're dying and turn up in emergency rooms because they think they're having a heart attack because you begin sweating, you get dizzy, you feel nauseous, you have other gastric distress, you start shaking and trembling, you get tingling in your hands and your feet. It's accompanied with this just overwhelming sense of dread and a kind of need to escape, and I've had that happen to me thousands of times over the course of my lifetime, and unfortunately sometimes it happens at work and I have to kind of run and hide in a stairwell or something like that. Researchers don't know whether clinical anxiety is an emotional, chemical, psychological, or spiritual problem. Stossel says it's probably all of the above. Ultimately, it's impossible to completely disentangle them, but I would say that there is a large genetic component to it. We now know this from piles and piles of genetic research that once one or more members of a family tree have generalized anxiety disorder or some other form of anxiety, it's much, much more likely that many other members of that family tree will also develop it, and they've now even begun to isolate some of the constellations of genes that lead to anxious temperaments, so partly it is genetic. Clinical anxiety has been documented in the annals of history from Hippocrates and Plato to Darwin and Freud, and every era presumes it's the most anxious. But Stossel says people today really are more anxious than ever. We have more potentially paralyzing choices to make in life. Few things are clear-cut, even when we go to the grocery store. What we do about debilitating anxiety has changed as well. We still often medicate it. For example, Hippocrates suggested drinking wine. In the Victorian age, it was laudanum. 
But now we have more choices. These days, the main treatments are, you know, there's an array of medications that you can take that treat it at its source, kind of in the brain. But the kind of cutting-edge psychological treatments, kind of therapies that there's a lot of evidence to support their efficacy are cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which basically involves a sort of form of exposure therapy, which is, you know, directly confronting the thing that makes you anxious, but in the company of a therapist with sort of guided deep breathing and relaxation and learning that you can confront the thing that scares you without having it overwhelm you and then reframing, they call it cognitive reframing, changing how you think about things. And that can be very effective. A lot of research shows it's as effective as medication but doesn't have side effects and dependency issues. And then mindfulness meditation, there's all kinds of new evidence that this practice which sort of emerged from the East but is now being adopted in the West. There's lots of evidence that people who are very practiced meditators significantly reduce their levels of anxiety. That's a long list of possible therapies, and Stossel has tried them all. In my own life, I would not have been able to survive and thrive and be productive as I have without access to various forms of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. And there are many people for whom the difference between being completely debilitated and unable to function and being able to be out in the world and being productive is a pill or some combination of pills. So I'm not anti-medication. That said, all things being equal, if you can manage your anxiety without medication, you're better off because you're avoiding the risks of side effects and dependency issues. And it's still a little bit mysterious what these things are doing to our brains over the long term. And there are probably a lot of people who are getting medication who don't really need it just because it's easy for physicians uh, and they get reimbursed by the insurance companies at the same rate for doing what they call a 15-minute psychopharmacology consult rather than a full 50-minute therapeutic hour. But whether one is medicated or not, the good news is that anxiety levels do seem to decrease naturally with age. There's a lot of research that shows that as you get into your 50s and into middle age, both anxiety and depression tend to decrease for a variety of reasons that researchers theorize either have to do with kind of changing expectations of what you're going to get out of life and becoming more accepting of yourself and then maybe actually neurobiological changes to your brain that make you more even keeled and content. So usually getting older can actually relieve anxiety. Stossel has also had to take a good long look at his anxiety as well. He says just writing his book has relieved his anxiety levels, at least somewhat. Simply the act of finishing the book and having it come out and having the world not end, you know, I've sort of wrestled with the shame and stigma of anxiety. That was therapeutic. I also have sort of done forced exposure therapy and having to do a lot of public speaking and stuff in that. You know, I've gotten better at managing the medication to do that. And just with practice, you get better. I would say my overall level of anxiety is moderately reduced. But is it gone or am I cured? No, I definitely still have bad episodes and you have to resort to medication. But overall, on balance, it's been helpful. And I still retain the hope that I'll continue to you know, improve and maybe someday be largely in remission, if not fully cured. And it's also been incredibly gratifying for Stossel to hear from many people who've thanked him for bringing the issue of anxiety to light. It's been quite striking and gratifying to hear from not only friends and colleagues, but also total strangers and including some celebrities who say, this is what I've suffered with all these years. I'm glad to see, you know, it's like you're articulating from within my own head. And, you know, thank you for talking openly about this. It's made me feel less alone or more comfortable or more comfortable talking about it myself, including from some psychotherapists who say that, you know, they've had a kind of lifelong coming to terms with their anxiety and that reading the book helped them with that process. And I had other friends write to me or talk to me and say, you know, the book made them feel good because they thought, well, you know, I thought I was anxious, but at least I'm not as messed up as he is. So they felt better. (laughs) You can learn more about Scott Stossel and find a link to his book, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind through a link on our website at radiohealthjournal.net. You can always find our shows on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hansen. Our production directors are Sean Waldron and Nick Hofstra. I'm Nancy Benson. The number of people living with and dying from Alzheimer's disease is growing. But according to the Alzheimer's Association 2015 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures Report, only 45% of them or their caregivers say they were told their diagnosis. Beth Kallmeyer, Vice President of Constituent Services for the Alzheimer's Association, says, in contrast, more than 90% of people with the four most common cancers or their caregivers were told their diagnosis. These shockingly low Alzheimer's disclosure rates are reminiscent of cancer 60 years ago when even mention of the word was taboo. The Alzheimer's Association believes people with Alzheimer's should be told their diagnosis. When this news is delivered with sensitivity, it allows the person with Alzheimer's to maximize their quality of life and to play an active role in planning for their future. Once there is a diagnosis, care and support services are available, making it easier for the person with Alzheimer's and their family to live the best life possible, including participation in research studies. Find out more about the new facts and figures report at ALZ.org. Now, kid. I know you look at me and think, man, that guy knows everything. And you're right, I do. But occasionally even I get stumped. I know, hard to believe. But when I need help, I get it from Granger. Granger can solve just about anything, from finding the right products to advice on installation to troubleshooting. Granger gets me what I need right when I need it. When a guru needs a guru, who does a guru call? Guru calls Granger. Get it? Got it? Good. Call clickgranger.com or stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.